0: Hello and welcome to our latest episode of The Lawdown, my name is Pooja Dasgupta, I am an associate at CM Murray and I am joined today by my colleagues, partners Beth Hale and Emma Bartlett and if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to our previous episodes of The Lawdown, we uh, focus on topical news stories and try and pick out interesting employment law angles and um explore the interesting aspects of those stories. So this week we've chosen three articles and and general topical stories to discuss. And the first one is on the FCA's consultation on proposals to boost disclosure of diversity on listed company boards and executive committees. And the consultation was actually launched um, some time ago in the summer of this year, and, and and I believe it's actually now closed, the consultation is closed, but we thought it would still be interesting to reflect on those proposals and consider what the response will look like and, and next steps. So just by way of brief summary, the proposals include changes to the FCA's listing rules to require listed companies to annually publish, a comply or explain statement, on whether they've achieved certain proposed targets. Um, And those targets include, firstly, having at least 40% of the board to be women, including those self-identifying as women. Uh, Secondly, at least one of the senior board positions to be a woman. And thirdly, at least one member of the board be from a non-white ethnic minority background as defined by the ONS. And the FCA is also proposing changes to their disclosure and transparency rules to require companies to ensure any existing disclosure on diversity policies, addresses key board committees, and also considers broader aspects of diversity. And these diversity targets aren't mandatory for companies to meet, which will come as a reassuring um, aspect to, to many companies. So in fact, the FCA is not setting quotas, but they are providing a positive benchmark for issuers to report against. And obviously, to me, this seems like, you know, a drive to tackle extensive inequality and a lack of inclusion across financial services. And it has been welcomed by many leading financial services firms. It's not to say that every 'll we'll share the same view, but um, I think we can all agree that DNI has definitely um, been the focus of many organizations minds recently over the last year. and having a robust DNI strategy can be crucial to achieving long-term business success. And and can have a whole range of benefits, uh, including in relation to attracting clients, attracting investors and attracting talent and retaining talent. So it it certainly seems like a positive step, but we'll have to see what that response to the consultation looks like. And I know, Emma, you've looked into um, these proposals in some detail, so it'll be good to know what you think about what next steps might look like.
1: Thanks, Peter, and thanks for such a a great summary of of what the consultation covered. We we obviously don't know how quickly the FCA is going to collate its position in relation to the consultation, but I would imagine it's going to move on quite quickly. If we look at what happened um, with NASDAQ, NASDAQ made their recommendations for substantially similar um, steps to be taken in December 2020 and then by the beginning of this summer. Um, they came into force and whilst there were some small exemptions to the obligations for small companies and overseas companies um, on NASDAQ, um, broadly the position over which the consultation took place was what happened in August and um, NASDAQ um, are somewhat following in the footsteps of San Francisco and what's happening in California with um, setting of quotas um, and legislation regarding the competition of boards um, to improve diversity in all respects and um, I believe uh, the FCA's consultation firmly is taking um, in the UK the uh, uh, proposals to move forward with greater board diversity to the next step. So the Hampton Alexander Review had um, covered the last five years and that was looking at um, putting forward voluntary targets for FTSE 350 companies and at the start um, of that review it was clear that there were a lot of companies um, who weren't able to do that or weren't willing to do it and came up with some uh, quite Victorian excuses as to why they weren't able to achieve greater diversity Um, but over the course of that five-year review um, those reasons were overcome and uh, more creative ways of improving board diversity um, were established But even even then, um, with significant progress in the FTSE 350, the final review was saying we've got to do much more. And I think firmly this is what the FCA consultation is doing. And I um, also believe that this is going to lead to change within other sectors as well for uh, for greater diversity.
0: Yeah, and I think um, one thing that I was thinking about was, you know, how will the FCA go about enforcing this, this kind of reporting and, and collecting, collecting this data and, and reporting in the way they want to about, you know, diversity-related data. And especially for those companies that don't maybe don't take it seriously or don't do it effectively, and maybe the, the quality of their reporting is poor. Um, do you have any thoughts on how effective any enforcement mechanisms might be?
1: Well, these are regulated companies. They're not going to want to be falling foul of any naming and shaming from their peer group. Um, whatsoever and uh, I do believe it will be taken seriously so whilst um, the obligation is comply or explain um, I do believe that the companies are going to be explaining um, and putting in place some careful plans to increase their board diversity in line with the um, uh, objectives that can be set by the FCA and the FCA starting the consultation this year is giving those FCA listed companies that will be within scope
2: um, you know a, a good run-up time to get their ducks in a row. But- I think Emma, what you say about peers, the, the sort of peers watching what other what other um competitors are doing is so interesting. So I think that if you look at the gender pay gap reporting obligations, um there was a lot of sort of concern about the enforcement mechanisms on on those obligations. And they were again were reporting obligations, there were no you know no obligations to actually Decrease your gender pay gap, but they were reporting obligations and there was a lot of sort of, well, it's going to be really, you know, it's for the EHRC to enforce and it's, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be a little bit toothless and is actually going to have an impact. But what really we've seen having a massive impact is that sort of public Um, naming and shaming of companies who either don't report or who have big gender pay gaps and I think there's that it's what competitors think it's what the market thinks it's what uh, future you know prospective employees think and current employees think so it's there's a lot of kind of I guess what I might call sort of positive peer pressure around complying with those things and actually making change even if the um, you know strict enforcement mechanisms are not um, an and don't have much of an impact so i think it i I think it is likely as you say to have a real impact
0: yeah i think there's um more of an incentive even even if companies aren't um persuaded by the moral case for kind of driving their dni strategy it's now got that kind of financial economic impact as well that i think uh companies will obviously you know that drives their business so i think that will be at the forefront of their minds and it's there's just such a wide range of benefits in in taking this seriously. So, that I think then takes us on to our second story that we wanted to talk about, and this relates to a uh, a news article that we saw that discussed London stockbrokers uh, called FinCap, who have announced that they will have um, they will be introducing unlimited holiday for them from next year to try to prevent staff burnout. And their policy, um, their new policy, is for staff to take a minimum of four weeks leave, plus two or three days every quarter. And that doesn't include time off. They they say that doesn't include time off to care for sick parents, children or pets, which they don't consider to constitute a a need to take leave as such. Um, That falls outside of that. So this comes off the back of FinCAP being exceptionally busy and the impact that that had on their employees' mental health, which they started to notice in February of this year. And for them, they were seeing their their staff getting frustrated, some some individuals not wanting to communicate on Zoom calls, staff working very long hours whilst working from home during the pandemic, Um, a very common story, which I'm sure we're all aware of, um, with lines between work and life becoming blurred and there being no boundaries. And in fact, by June, was so bad that they noticed it impacting employees physical health and people were starting to take time off and they then decided to kind of reshape their working practices and introduce these these new policies. And this actually follows a trend of other firms, well known firms, at trying to think about how best to deal with and to combat workplace stress, for example. Bumble temporarily closed their offices in June for a week and they have brought in a policy where twice a year they have a week-long company-wide holiday and employees again have unlimited paid leave and then in April LinkedIn also shut down for a week and gave nearly all of their 16,000 employees a break. So um, there's clearly a trend here um, and I think it it obviously shows a progressive approach in terms of and a proactive approach in terms of tackling workplace stress, which is of course a very serious issue. And, and taking these types of steps will, will, of course, benefit, you know, companies' culture as well as also, of course, mitigating legal risk, which is often at the forefront of companies' minds. Um, I think it's important when thinking about these types of policies about introducing the concept of unlimited leave. There are a few things to think about in terms of on the flip side you know how to maintain business continuity so for example if there's this kind of total shutdown of, of, of an office as Bumble and LinkedIn did is there some kind of skeleton staff support during that time um, in terms of unlimited holiday arrangements do you need to make that subject to client need and or maintain kind of minimum notice requirements perhaps to protect uh, client resource and and, and indeed others workload because it may have an impact on, on colleagues if there are certain individuals who are perhaps you know taking that at face value in terms of the unlimited leave and taking extensive leave and then actually their colleagues have to pick up all of their work then will that then adversely impact their colleagues health so I think there are lot of considerations here and obviously you read the headline you think wow that's that's amazing unlimited leave but actually I think that if you delve into it a little bit further it can be complex and tricky.
2: Yeah I totally agree I think it's not as straight. I mean it's obviously the first thing to say is it's really positive that organisations are looking at their Um, And thinking about how to improve their staff's mental well-being, physical well-being and thinking about sort of those boundaries between work and and home life um, and supplying their minds to that issue. That's an incredibly positive development. Um, I think the unlimited holiday, I think, is a is a little bit of a kind of, um, I don't know, a sort of big announcement. But actually, what does it mean in practice? As you say, I think I think evidence from previous employers who've done that, I mean, anecdotal evidence, but suggests that actually people end up taking, in some cases, less holiday, because although they've got unlimited holiday, there's not the kind of structure of going, oh, I need to use my days, or I've got this many days for the end of the year. And I think actually removing that structure around how many days holiday you get can, in some cases, I think, make people take less holiday. And people are concerned, as you say, about leaving their colleagues in the lurch. Um, And yeah, so I think people, It doesn't necessarily mean that people take more holiday. Um, I think encouraging people to take the holiday that they are entitled to under their employment contract is really important. And monitoring where there are people who don't do that, because, you know, a lot of organisations have one or two people who just sort of never take their leave. And I think that was particularly a problem last year where um, when we were in lockdown, when nobody could go anywhere when they were on leave, you know, then people would go, well, there's no point me taking holiday because I'm just what am I going to do, hang around at home? In lockdown it's not that so i think you know just making sure that people do take a break and monitoring that is really important i'm not sure that unlimited holiday does that but i think it's at least it sends a really positive message
1: well without, without doubt the um leaders within those businesses who have unlimited holiday need to do it do it themselves they need to be seen to be taking the leave and not adopting a more american model and only taking 10 days a year or something like that but Um, ensuring that at the very least their employees are taking feeling that they can take what they need to take is is really quite important because otherwise it's it's going to be one of those policies that actually employees don't reap the benefits of. I saw this week, I don't know if you saw, um, Atom Bank had announced that it was moving all of its staff, which is nearly 500 staff, onto a four-day working week so uh, they're all full-time they've dropped the working week by about four hours, but no drop in pay. Um, just to say, we recognize that from a well-being perspective, our employees will benefit from having that extra day. And uh, they st- I assume they stagger the, the days so that it's not everybody taking Friday off. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really innovative way of looking at um, how do we modify wellbeing where, well, let's look at this five day working week that was Something that came in in the 30s—is um, that fit for purpose anymore, or can we actually do our work within four days? And if so, let's do it. And I just thought that was a really sort of positive well-being. Not suitable for every company, I'm
2: sure, but um, I, I thought that was quite innovative. Again, sort of just applying their minds to people's well-being and looking after their staff and how, they, how that is managed. And that, that you're right; there'll be different needs for different. Um, for different businesses won't there and it won't that won't work for everybody but just sort of thinking about how people are impacted by the long hours culture and also just acknowledging that people can be really really efficient when they're working part-time um emma you and i've both worked part-time for big chunks of our career and i think you can you know we we would um support the idea that you can be just as just as productive working part-time as working full-time yeah and
0: i, I think the, th- the whole kind of concept of it being business specific i think there's ways of um you know, having employee engagement surveys, running running those types of surveys to work out what's best for your employees and how how they're doing, and and whether or not you know, something like a four day week would work for them. Um, and I think, yeah, collecting that data and speaking to your employees and
2: working out what's right for your organisation is yeah. is important. And obviously, bearing in mind client needs as well. It's um, yeah. If we, if you're in a service industry where you're you're working for clients, you need to bear their needs in mind as well. Yeah, indeed. Great, thank you both.
0: So the the third and final topic, as it were, that we wanted to discuss was the recent increase in menopause-related claims. And so the cases um, that that have been menopause-related have jumped in the past four years, the cases that have proceeded to employment tribunal. And there is, in fact, analysis from the HM Courts and Tribunal Service showing that menopause was cited in five cases in the last nine months of 2018 in comparison with um, menopause being cited in 10 cases just in the first six months of this year 2021 which if that rate continued obviously would potentially reach 20 for the full year and these figures only refer to cases that went to tribunal in England and therefore represent only a fraction of employment disputes um, because obviously in in certain instances that might be private settlements that are are entered into. And there are a whole host of uh, interesting cases um, that turn on particular facts. And and Emma Emma will discuss some of those because she's looked at them recently. it's, It's quite interesting because menopausal women are, in fact, the fastest growing working demographic in the UK. However, sometimes support for that potentially, you know, very large group of individuals can be absent from workplaces. And I think that often boils down to a lack of education and awareness. And that's obviously building in a, num- a number of different organisations. And, and we've noticed that we're, we're talking about it a lot more as well. So yeah, there's obviously statistics showing that there's, a, there's been a real sharp increase in, in these types of claims. And, and that should be. Act as a warning or at least a reminder to employers to educate themselves on the menopause and the impact that it may have on women's health um, and their ability to undertake the job and any adjustments that may be needed um, to perhaps reduce any disadvantage that they face as a result. Um, so, Emma, I know that you've looked into some of the um, interesting cases recently, and it'd be great to hear from you um, a summary of. The, the most interesting ones that have kind of caught your attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. There is a great deal of attention on the menopause at the moment. Um, the government obviously did a, a consultation on it, uh, which, as employment lawyers, we have an opportunity to respond to, as did other interested parties. And the increase in the tribunal cases that are actually getting to hearing um, it is uh, remarkable. The the actual percentage of cases as a whole, though you mentioned some numbers just then, is still only a a very small fraction of the number of cases which in total reach the tribunal. And one of the things um, that interestingly the consultation was focusing on is whether menopause itself should be a protected characteristic for the purpose of the Equality Act, or whether we could see from the cases that uh, menopausal employees are able to get some protection under the legislation, because there has traditionally been a very small number of cases which reference the menopause. The question obviously has to arise, is it difficult to bring these cases because the legislation is is unhelpful, or is it um, for a number of other reasons? Um, And I suggest it it might be a combination of other reasons as well, such as um, people not wanting to speak out about it, it's always been quite a taboo subject, and uh, the embarrassment that is caused in the, has, uh, as the cases bear out um, of women uh, and menopausal employees. I mention menopausal employees because obviously um, individuals who no longer identify as women will still um, go through the, the menopause, so not wanting to raise it in the workplace might mean that actually you're not going to follow it through into tribunals. But really interesting cases. Um, that I've had the opportunity to look at recently. And the basis on which these claims have been brought um, by um, menopausal employees who have suffered a detriment in the workplace because of their own menopause condition um, have largely been based on disability discrimination claims. Um, although there are a few that also combined age and sex discrimination within those claims. Um, and just very briefly, uh, when we're talking about the menopause, it's important to note that not all menopausal employees will go through the same symptoms. And it's only where the symptoms are um, severe that they can have that significant impact on a person's day-to-day activities and their ability to perform their job as usual in the workplace. And it's, it's those um, severe symptoms which are giving rise to uh, the majority of the cases which are being brought on a disability discrimination basis but you don't actually need to have severe symptoms to suffer discrimination in the workplace on the grounds of um, or because of age and sex discrimination so I I think it might be useful just to look at um, when I was looking at the cases treatment fell into a couple of categories Um, the first category being offensive or very personal and derogatory comments made to a menopausal employee but um, for example her early menopause meant that she wouldn't be able to conceive which you can, um, that sort of throwaway comment to an employee who um, is going through the menopause at an age which is um, below the age of their sort of late 40s and 50s, which is the typical age where the menopause hits um, menopausal individuals. Um, About 10% of individuals do go through it in their 20s or 30s. Um, It is a derogatory and offensive comment. Um, Other comments also included, you're too young to go through the menopause. A male manager stopping a menopausal employee from talking about um, the issues that they were experiencing because of the menopause saying, sorry, that's lady issues and girly stuff. Um, And where an employee was trying to explain the reasons why she was unwell, saying too much information, which caused her embarrassment and unlikely to ever raise the issue again. Um, Refusal to adjust workplace temperature for someone suffering from hot flushes or refusal to modify prescribed uniform, which required the individual to um, wear the uniform buttoned up to the neck, um, was a, a, you can see a failure potentially to make a reasonable adjustment. And actually in the press, a couple of, again, creative, forward-thinking employers have thought about how to resolve these issues by having firstly a menopause policy, and then secondly, looking at, so Tesco's for example, um, there are obviously other supermarkets available, but Tesco's was um, in the press recently for um, designing new uniforms which were menopause friendly, which um, I thought was very important of. Making fun of a menopausal employee. Now the individual doesn't have to um, be suffering severe symptoms, but making fun of them, um, suggesting that they might be struggling because of the menopause or telling the menopausal employee that she was upset with the line of questioning because she was menopausal. Telling an employee to go and get HRT in order to make herself fit for work is totally a derogatory and offensive comment. And um, failing to take into account the impact of menopausal symptoms when considering performance, attendance and conduct. So with, the, with that sort of as the background of how these um, claims are being framed, would you like me to just talk about what, what I'd like to call my favourite menopause cases, which I think um, uh, gives it's some... <laughs> give some examples of how in practice um, these cases um, are getting forward through the tribunal system. So the first is a Danaki and a Talent Technology Services which got to preliminary hearing where the um, employment tribunal was considering whether or not um, the menopausal symptoms that the individual was suffering were sufficiently disruptive um, and substantial Uh, to constitute a statutory disability under the Quality Act. And for this individual, she had started off experiencing hot flushes in quite a minor way, Um, but very quickly they became very disruptive to her. She was experiencing them seven or eight times a day, which then was regularly accompanied by palpitations and increased anxiety. The frequency increased further to 10 to 12 times a day when she was under stress or pressure. So you can see instantly that an employer might be thinking, right, in certain circumstances, can we reduce the, um, the negative impacts of the menopausal symptoms by ensuring that stress and pressure are reduced or, or well-managed? She then began to experience night sweats, um, which disturbed her sleep, um, up to six to eight times a night she was awake. Um, and uh, whether as a result of this disturbed sleep or a feature of hormonal imbalance, she then began to experience fatigue memory difficulties and concentration difficulties. So these are typical symptoms um, of the menopause and the judge in this case had no difficulty in accepting that in principle typical menopausal symptoms can have the relevant disabling effect on the individual and um, he had little hesitation in concluding that her menopausal impairment of her day-to-day activities was more than minor or trivial. That case didn't go further than the preliminary judgment and we assume that it move forward to some sort of resolution between the parties. Um, another case uh, which um, has got beyond the Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeals Tribunal, so um, fantastic to have this judgment from the Employment Appeals Tribunal which then um, uh, other employers and employees can look at um, as it sets a precedent. And in this case the um, individual was receiving treatment for her menopausal symptoms, um, was seeing a consultant every four months. She told occupational health about the symptoms, but they didn't explore them further or in detail. She later told her line manager that she was experiencing menopausal symptoms and the line manager said she knew what it was like because she was going through it herself. Um, The individual was um, invited to attend, um, uh, she'd gone through some sort of disciplinary with regards to sickness absence. The sickness absence was related to this underlying medical condition, um, and she received a warning in relation to it, which she appealed. The appeal, however, was um, conducted by five men in a room, which uh, the composition of that appeal panel made her feel incredibly uh, awkward and she found it very difficult to explain what the underlying medical condition was um, in that there was no encouragement for her to um, discuss it further. And it resulted um, firstly in her feeling that they could have made, uh, firstly, they could have made better judgment around um, how this could be dealt with as part of the sickness absence process. Um, But moreover, that she should have had some adjustments made to the disciplinary process to allow her to have a proper discussion about it and in those cases, her menopausal symptoms were again hot flushes, sweating, palpitations, anxiety, night sweats, sleep disturbance, fatigue, poor concentration, headaches Um, and it resulted in um, meetings and appointments being forgotten, losing personal possessions, forgetting to put the handbrake on her car, forgetting to lock her car, leaving the cooker on, leaving the iron on. And these were all things that were available to the employer through medical records that the employer chose to ignore um, because this menopause itself was not considered by the employer at the relevant time to possibly be a disability, which is um, uh, what, thankfully, the the Employment Tribunal um, and the EAT got to achieve, which is great. Um, And finally, I'm going to mention just one more case. And this is, uh, in my view, a little bit of a a really great guidance for employers who are considering um, how to perhaps educate and provide some training to um, supervisors with regards to employees who are suffering from the menopause. And so this was uh, firstly a a claimant who worked for the Scottish Courts and Tribunal Service. And um, I have to say her menopausal condition um, had a very severe impact on her. The employer had made some really great adjustments. They'd recognised that she needed some assistance, which is fantastic. Um, What the employer didn't do, though, was continue to review those adjustments. And that is what resulted in this um, tribunal case, where uh, the um, Scottish Employment Tribunal accepted that she was disabled and that... The individual had been dismissed, and the dismissal was procedurally and substantively unfair. And she was disabled by reason of her um, menopausal condition. The adjustments that the employer had made, so she worked um, in the court, included ensuring that um, she was working in rooms near toilets. And she no longer had to cover certain duties, um, and they you know there was line management support there but when she needed one further adjustment it was almost as if the employer had gone you know enough is enough we've done enough for you we are really friendly to this but this is um, this is unreasonable and so at that point they had discounted some medical evidence which they should have taken into account in accepting that um, one of her behaviors arose out of her um, disability and so just a, a one lesson there I think that's come out of this is that it's, a, it's an ongoing um, step isn't it to
2: continue to consider what adjustments might be reasonable and should be taken into account. Yeah I think it's such an interesting topic So I think I mean one of the things to just think about is the fact that people experience the menopause very differently. Lots of women don't have any symptoms or have very mild symptoms and so the idea of actually sort of saying the menopause is a disability in its own right I think feels very uncomfortable to a lot of people actually that actually that, you know, it, it feels like a sort of label, which isn't really apt for what a lot of people go through. Um, so I think sort of how you manage that, I think, you know, it, it's about communication, isn't it? It's about policies and communication and just allowing people to have the space to talk about it. Um, and I think it's a, there's a valuable lesson for all of us, not just in relation to the menopause, but in relation to all sorts of issues that people find too personal to talk about in the workplace which then lead to issues um, and which then leads to kind of disputes because people haven't felt able to speak up. And I think, you know, there there are lots of sort of women's issues, periods, um, pregnancy loss, miscarriage, although that is not purely a women's issue, of course, and men are impacted too. But I think um, just allowing those kinds of conversations to happen in the workplace is so important and allowing people, having policies that people can refer to, to say this, you know, I'm, I'm, here's the policy I'm relying on and this is why I need X, Y, Z kind of adjustment, I think is really important.
0: Yeah, and, and from what I've read and, and heard, um, I think traditionally some of the symptoms of menopause might have been perhaps misdiagnosed or, you know, not quite picked up. So I think the fact there is more awareness now, you know, both in the medical, you know, that kind of field as well as just generally, um, I think that will help, you know, women and those who previously identified as women to, know themselves get to grips with what they're going through and be able to then kind of share that with their employer as they need to so thank you very much i think that takes us to the end of our law down podcast um for for this month Um, thank you very much to beth and to emma for their very interesting insights and contributions Um, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please do like share subscribe if you've enjoyed it and um, we have plenty more materials um, and information on our on our website of, of the various topics that we've discussed um, and associated issues on our website, which is www.cm-murray.com. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you.